Alright, hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And uh, today I'm doing um, a special episode for you guys. I'll explain what I'm doing in a moment and why it's special. Um, but I, uh, re- I was reached out to by my Christian brother and, and uh, great friend Marvin Wallace, who's been on the show before. And, um, you know, every a lot of you who are familiar with SNS will have known about uh, sort of the persecution and bullying and harassing that a lot of the skeptics there had uh, put me through, and not only me, but to many other Christians as well. But uh, apparently now they're going after Marvin, Marvin, when all he's doing is trying to say, look, I, I want substantive arguments. I actually want to engage with you guys and uh, substantively. Give me something substance. No more personal attacks. Stop insulting me. Stop bullying me and harassing me and making fun of me. Just give me something I can work with. And, um, you know, David Johnson is banning him just because he wants substantive arguments. And, um, and there's, yeah, so, so Marvin's not happy. Obviously, there's double standards this, on those boards. Skeptics get away with lying, with saying, with doxing people, with doing whatever they want to do, you know, name, personal name calling and stuff like that. Um, but then nothing happens to them. Um, but unfortunately, Christians, for not doing that kind of thing, they get banned, they get uh, blocked and stuff, and David uses his administ- abuses his admin power to, to block anybody he, doesn't, he disagrees with. He did it to Tara, he did it to me for, for something that I didn't even do. But uh, it was just merely something I was informing that there is a, a point in time where I was tempted to kind of uh, repay, you know, respond in, in vengeance or something. And I, I overcame that. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that because I, I'm at this state. I'm loving my enemies. I, I'm letting go. You can, That's why I, I just walked away. I'm not going to respond in kind. But anyways, now they're going after Marvin. And all Marvin's doing, he's being banned. And all he's doing is simply asking for substantive arguments. And they don't like that. They don't like being exposed that they've got nothing um, to offer but personal insults and that sort of thing on those SNS boards. So, yeah, I'll just say that's the only reason I, I'm going ahead with this is, you know, Marvin Wallace, he, he's always been a great defender of me and, and exp- revealing truth when, I, when you know, myself or other Christians are being treated badly by the SNS skeptics, and he's re- now he's being uh, treated badly. So he's, he's asked me to kind of just call attention to that. Um, usually I don't um do that kind of thing i just i use rsm for substantive dialogue i don't care about petty personal spats i'm not going to get into you know he said she said garbage and stuff like that um but i'm doing this as a favor for marvin and i really wanted to reflect on what i could do um that wouldn't detract from rsm real seeker ministry's purpose in terms of sharing substantive information and here's what I here's what I came up with. So let me know if it's a good idea or not. But here, here's my idea to be consistent with my new loving my enemy philosophy, not repaying insult for insult, no more tough love approach with SNS skeptics. Um, but at the same time, I'm honoring uh, my fellow Christian brothers' request to have the truth exposed about their bad treatment and their evil behavior towards innocent people like me or him or countless other Christians uh, on those boards.
and uh, today I just wanted to do a special episode. So it's something I've never done before. Um, I, I tend not to like to do these types of episodes and that sort of thing, but I wanted to do, I, I did a recent uh, discussion or debate with uh, Tom Jump, the atheist, the famous atheist YouTuber and that sort of thing. And um, even though I don't think it went that badly, uh, a lot the consensus opinion among a lot of the skeptical listeners is, look, I got slaughtered, I, I didn't do a good job and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I wanted to do up a review episode. So, so um, es- essentially, this this isn't so much uh, something again going to be against uh, Tom Jump or his audi- his the skeptics in his audience. Uh, I think that overall, um, you know, I wasn't impressed. I, I wasn't happy with some things in it, like how you know the style of it was a bit aggressive, and I got interrupted a lot. I wasn't able to like give a proper case in terms of presenting the the points I wanted to raise. Uh, There were certain things that I wanted to get out there to his audience that I I wasn't able to, just given the format. And, you know, that's totally fine. I'm not upset about that. It's Tom Jump's show, and he wanted to cut straight to the jugular. He wanted to get out the points that he wanted to get out, and I was merely just responding to whatever he gave. So, fair enough. I'm perfectly happy with that. And um, overall, no issues with um, the skeptics' comments were not uh, positive towards me or, or anything like that. In his audience, they didn't think I did a good job and that sort of thing. Um, but then again, yeah, they you know they just have this one show to base it off of. They don't they don't know me and the level of detailed research and expertise that I have in some of the arguments that I was giving and that sort of thing, or the background that I wasn't able to present. Um, so, so yeah, uh, and when I interact with them, they're great, you know, they, they seem open-minded, they say thank you for your efforts, even though I disagree with you on this and that sort of thing. So I think that's great. Uh, I'm more doing this as a response to other skeptics who do know me and their responses from the SNS skeptics and that sort of thing. That's what's the impetus here, because these guys should know better. And, you know, they're insulting, they're belittling, they're condescending, they're the level of bias and hypocrisy from these people is truly unprecedented. And, you know, people that are familiar with the SNS show and that sort of thing and the boards and that sort of, you already know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not going to get into details of who did what and, you know, trying to slam them and everything like that. I'm, I'm finished with, I used to respond in kind and that sort of thing. I used to display a tough love with heart, with skeptics that I found were very hard of heart or were so stupid and so hypocritical that there must be some kind of supernatural blinding by Satan in my estimation. That's what I truly believe. These people are so immoral. They're so hypocritical. They're so just plain stupid and ignorant that I don't believe it's naturalistically possible for a human being that doesn't suffer from brain damage to... To be like this, um, I think that there's some, Satan is messing up their faculties in this regard, and that's my honest belief. And I'm not saying this as an insult. I'm finished with returning a tough love and uh, trying out a tough love approach to get through to them and hope that they'll realize, hey, I, I don't like it when Dale says this to me, but I said this to him first. Maybe I should stop. It it doesn't sink in. They they literally can't see. They're blinded as the Bible says, by Satan, to not even be able to see how their treatment is atrocious and hurtful and it's just wrong and immoral. And 
again, I'm not unique in this. They, they do it to me. I, I usually just let it go and that sort of thing or try to give them a dose of their own to wake them up. I've, I've turned to leaf, and I'm not alone. David Russell feels the same way. Marvin feels the same way. Joyce feels the same way. Robert Parr feels the same way. We all feel the same way because we've dealt with these skeptics, you know, over a year, over the course of years, and there's just no recognition of their faults or ability to be fair and have a balanced view. And, and that's fine. Like I said, I've turned a new leaf. I, I'm no longer going to use the tough love approach. It doesn't work with these particular skeptics. And that's the impetus for this show. I want to prove, look, I'm not angry. I'm not hateful towards my enemies. I'm going to, I'm just letting go Matthew 10, 14. I'm not going to engage with them anymore, but uh, I'm going to respond with in love and that sort of thing. And that's the impetus for this video. That's why I want to do a review of the interview with Tom Jump. I'm going to, I'm going to ignore their insults, their belittling, their utter hate displayed towards me. Uh, rather immorally and disgustingly, I, I have to say. Um, but I'm going to respond back in love. I'm going to respond with substance by via reviewing Tom Jump's interview rather than repaying insult for insult or anything like that. So that's the point of this, is I want to show, look, I've, I've grown, I've matured. I, I've realized that the best strategy with certain skeptics is to just ignore them and ignore the insults, not give them, uh, you know, tough love. If it's, you know, you keep trying the same thing and it never works, try something else. So my strategy is I'm just going to respond to the substance. That's all I care about is truth and helping share share the gospel truth with you guys. So yeah, uh, me and Tom Jump go over some various substantive issues. He raises some substantive objections. Um, let me, uh, now that I have time to think about it properly, uh, let me respond to them, you know, Obviously, in the moment, I'm not good at speaking off the cuff all the time. Ordinarily, uh, people from RSM will know that I've got some medical conditions, so I'm taking medications that are, affect my cognitive abilities to think in the moment and process things properly. Uh, hopefully, that'll be finished on July 28th. I'm supposed to go back to the hospital, and hopefully that'll all be taken care of. Um, but yeah, so it's that's my response, and that's my, my aims in doing this kind of review episode of the substantive points I did with Tom Jump. I want it to be an illustration of, look, with with certain skeptics, there are different, Jesus gives us different models of response. You know, you can give the loving, compassionate response. Jesus gives that. Um, with some skeptics, the tough love approach is correct. You know, you give them a dose of their own, an edifying and loving dose of their own to get them to wake up. And some of them do realize and say, hey, yeah, we're, we were being a bit biased or one-sided or hypocritical or ignorant or something like that whatever it is that they're doing that's wrong and then they'll stop it and vice versa you know obviously sometimes christians can mess up and, and that sort of thing but they're at least willing to wake up and recognize hey I, i'm doing something wrong let's stop and start over but there are some skeptics where nothing works and with that i think you just need to walk away i truly believe that's what jesus tells us to do in matthew 10 14 we need to shake the dust off our sandals and Hey, you've rejected my message. You've rejected all my attempts to get through to you. You're not interested in the truth, so see you later. I'm, I'm not going to waste my time engaging with you. It just gets into personal, personal spats and meaningless stuff. All that matters is the substance. Is the gospel message true? And my sharing that. So 
that's the that's what I'm trying to accomplish here. I hope that that comes through by ignoring any of their insults, not responding to any of that stuff, and just saying, "Okay, look, you guys think I did terrible with Tom Jump? Great. Let's let me take some time to look over his substantive objections and address them properly and fully." All right. So yeah, with that said, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Okay. So the very first thing that uh, Tom Jump. Uh, kind of gives a substantive objection to it right from the beginning. After I give my intro, I mentioned the fact that I employed the use of Bayes' theorem, uh, at least in some form, not the proper form uh, in terms of, you know, putting out conditional probabilities and that sort of thing, but in a naive use of the term. Naive not as an insult, but as a technical term. And I assign my own subjective probabilities to various evidential factors. So, for example, uh... Yeah, well, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, so so Tom Jump objected to this. And he, in his own words, here's what he said, just so I don't take him out of context. Here is his objection when he heard this uh, that I said, I used Bayes' theorem in arriving at my 53.14% probability that Christianity is true at the time of my conversion on May 5th, 2018. Huh, that's, that's interesting, because the assess Bayes' theorem, all it does is it tells you what you already believe. So... Assessing the Bayes probability would have, you should have already believed before you did that, I would assume. Uh, I don't see that that's the case. It, it gives you, so in the first place, I should admit, I didn't use Bayes' theorem properly. So I didn't calculate conditional probabilities or anything like that. It was more just a direct subjective uh, probability value uh, for, you know, whatever the evidence were was that I was um, assessing. Um, but obviously, I would break that up into parts. I would present my reason, objective reasons and stuff like that. And then I would assess each factor subjectively. So essentially, I just used Bayes' theorem as a fancy way of, of getting what is the cumulative total of my own subjective assessments of each factor. Right. So if it's telling you your own subjective assessments, then it's telling you what you already believe. Well, no, I, I mean, so put it this way, when you, when you assess each factor, you kind of, okay, you've assigned a value, you've gone through all of the factors that, that contribute to your overall conclusion. And then Bayes comes in and just tells you, you can get an objective cumulative total for each of those factors, as opposed to just jumbling it up inside of your head um, and making an overall judgment. So I didn't, well, that's, I that's the part that's not true. So Bayes doesn't give you an objective total at all, not even close. It's completely subjective. It's the problem of the prior. So all Bayes does is it tells you, if you believe X, here is the conclusion Y. But it, it's only telling you the things that are the result of the things you already believe. It gives you no objective basis whatsoever. It's purely just assessing based on your current beliefs, here is what should follow. But it, there's no objective basis to it whatsoever. That's kind of the point of Bayes' theorem. All it does is tell you the conclusion that you should have of the beliefs if you have these beliefs. For sure, yeah. There, there's always that Geigel problem. That's what I hear you trying to say, right? Garbage in, garbage out kind of thing. Um, but I, I just use Bayes. So that that's where it comes down to me defending my subjective probability values and how I got it, presenting my reasons and that sort of thing. Uh, but the way I see Bay, the reason why I wanted to use Bay is to get the overall cumulative total, and that is objective, is I think if you don't do that, you suffer from two Geigo problems. So you have the normal garbage in, garbage out, um, but you also have 
great stuff in garbage out if you don't use bays. I didn't have that problem because as long as my inputs were correct, then I'm guaranteed to have the proper total cumulatively. So it, at least it takes that element of bias out on that level. Okay, so coming back now, um, uh, I was the real seeker. So what's my commentary about this? So I think that I gave the full context of the discussion here. Uh, before it kind of sidetracked into, well, can they use it for history or can they use it for miracles, stuff like that. So the, the main essence of the substantive objection here, I think, for the most part, Tom and I are on the same page. And I, I think I responded perfectly adequately here in, in kind of countering his approach while affirming, yes, it's true that there's always going to be a subjective, those inputs, um, might are probably going to be subjective like their subjective probabilities and therefore the total uh will be subjective the cumulative total that i get uh by using Bayes' theorem but nonetheless like i said i, I kind of explained with those two geigo problems I, I it's impossible that i'm wrong about what my cumulative total is given those inputs and Here's here's a mistake I think Tom Tom is just assuming that because I'm uh, assigning subjective probability values or or making a you know that kind of judgment um, rather than making empirical or statistical probability values that therefore my inputs are not objective and I wish I had said this um, on the show it was something I thought of quickly but it's I didn't get to to mention it I didn't think to raise it. So that's a false assumption on Tom's part. I've done hard work to prove that the inputs I'm giving when I study the evidence for the resurrection and on the empty tomb and stuff like that, just like any historian, I'm, I'm providing objective historical arguments and evidences that ground the subjective probability values that I assign. Uh, so, you know, people from SNS and also from RSM will know how thorough I am in breaking up all of the elements of a given argument, all of the premises, their sub-aspects or sub-premises or whatever, um, assigning values to each of them uh, in order to raise up, build up into this overall cumulative case. And I base this objectively, like any other historian or philosopher or scientist. That doesn't necessarily always mean I'm... I'm providing empirical evidence, sometimes it's a historical evidence, sometimes it's logical evidence, you know, what, whatever the nature of the evidence is, but I am providing objective reasons for the subjective probability values that I assign. And I, I don't think that Tom was getting this, at least at this point. He seems to be thinking, well, it's, it's just purely a subjective uh, judgment. Like I just go, oh, Jesus rose from dead, um, 58%. No, there's way more details than that, and I provide objective grounds that any other person can evaluate or not evaluate uh, on that front. Uh, and you can come up with your own subjective assessment in terms of a probability value of those objective reasons. And my only aim, when I assign my own subjective probability values, my only aim is to prove I'm within this reasonableness range, that I'm re a reasonable person. An average person, average intelligence, average wisdom, discernment, and, and whatnot, in assigning that value. That's my only aim when I'm looking at miracles or, or proofs for Christianity or something like that. And um, on that basis, the subjective probability value, while it is subjective 
uh, it does have an objective basis. And I'm a permissivist, what's called a permissivist. I don't go for Richard Feldman, uh, what he calls the uniqueness thesis, whereby, oh, well, if Dale is 58% convinced that the empty tomb is true, then every objective, reasonable person has to assign 58%. That's impossible, and that doesn't happen in our fallen world. We come up with different values, and I think that there's a range of values that are reasonable. And I kind of established this with, think of the example of the Holocaust, right? So maybe I'm 99.99% convinced the Holocaust happened, given our objective evidence. You present testimonies, pictures, camera footage, whatever the evidence, the objective evidence is that I'm basing. Let's say I'm, I assess that and go, okay, I'm 99% convinced. Uh, I don't believe conspiracy theories. I believe that the Holocaust happened. Let's pretend Tom Jump, he would say, well, I'm not 99%. I'm 100% convinced. And a third person might say, well, I'm 98.7% convinced based on the same, assuming we have the same evidence and we're privy to it and stuff like that. Well, I think we could make a case those all fall within the reasonableness range. The evidence is so strong for the Holocaust that it's pr definitely proven beyond reasonable doubt, which I arbitrarily define as 95.01% proven or more. Uh, that's just my arbitrary definition of what it means for something to be proven beyond reasonable doubt. But let's say uh, a Muslim from the Middle East or from Iran comes and says, no, 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 I'm only convinced 10%. I've seen all the evidence. I'm considering the same evidence you guys are, but I'm only 10% convinced. Well, it's clear that that guy's outside the unreasonableness range. We can tell that that's obvious. And this is despite the fact that there is an element of subjectivity. We, I can't really define what exactly is the reasonableness range and prove objectively yes, this to this, right? But I'm using the same standard of evidence that our legal courts use with this reasonable person or this reasonableness range. And there's this kind of semi-objective sense that we can tell. Well, yeah, even though we get different values, you're still reasonable in your judgment. The Muslim who from Iran who says that uh, the Holocaust never happened, that's, or is only 10%, probable given the evidence that's unreasonable you are not a reasonable person i can at least tell that even if i can't tell you exactly where the range is uh so that's that's sort of how i deal with the probabilities i hope that that kind of um helps that right so so tom jump is making a false assumption that because i'm using subjective probabilities that there is no ob objective basis on which those subjective probabilities are, are grounded in and that therefore my cumulative total is just totally subjective and devoid of all objectivity. That's not true, even if he's right that the Geigel problem is there. If my object, if I don't have proper rational objective reasons um, that ground my subjective probabilities, like if I just didn't care about the evidence and I just said, well, the resurrection happened. I'm 68% certain that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, if I plug 68% in it after doing something like that, that subjective probability would be totally unreasonable, and therefore my cumulative total would be unreasonable. Garbage in, garbage out. So another point that uh, Tom Jump makes right at the beginning um, that I, I don't think was accurate at all, he kind of he just says, 
Well, you base theorem just says what you already believe, and he, he's right in terms of the inputs, that Geigo issue, but it almost implied, like he's saying, well, you just already believe that Christianity was true, totally, um, before you did the Bayesian calculation. That's just totally false. I was not a Christian until May 5th, 2018, when I got that 53.14% calculation, and I decided to commit my life to Christ on that basis alone. That was sufficient evidence for me to go, yes, I'm a, I'm a believer and follower of Jesus now. Um, so I didn't have the total in my head. That was the whole point of using Bayes. I, I may have had all the pieces. So for example, on the negative side, I started out with a prior probability for Christianity of 5%. The negative evidence, I assigned 95% proven that Christianity is false on the basis of the negative evidence in isolation. Then I looked at the positive evidences. All the other religions, so in effect, I actually cheated against my, against Christianity um, on the basis of the negative evidences, whereas with other religions, I started at the proper 50-50% in Bayes' theorem, which equals the principle of indifference. It's Maybe it's true, maybe it's false, I, d I don't know. And then I evaluated the evidences in isolation and that sort of thing. Um, with Christianity, I kind of cheated against it just because I knew I had a bias for Christianity growing up in the church and stuff like that. Nonetheless, though, there were negative evidences that worked, that I thought worked, and that sort of thing, and justified me assigning um, probability that Christianity is false. But the positive evidences overcame that. And it wasn't until I put all the pieces together, remember, 53.14, 95% on the negative side, and it was like 95 point something, uh, less than 96% on the positive side. It just squeaked by over that 50% uh, barrier. Because I, I believe in the Lockean thesis. I think there is a threshold uh, that we have to believe in in terms of the burden of proof before we believe a proposition. I think that is more than 50%. We believe it. Uh, less than 50%, we disbelieve it. And at the 50%, we're agnostic. We don't know either way. So. I believe in that threshold. Most philosoph a lot of philosophers in epistemology, like Dr. Liz Jackson, they they don't think that there is necessarily a threshold that you have to get more than that, a probability threshold before you believe something. Um, so so yeah, I, I'm kind of straightforward and old-fashioned in that way. No, I think more than fifty percent is the threshold that you believe that you believe something. Um, believe something's true if it's less than 50 percent you disbelieve it to whatever degree and if it's at the 50 percent level uh 50 percent in bayes terms translates to look either it's true or it's false there's zero percent proof that it's true there's zero percent proof that it's false i don't know is it true or false that that's what the i mean by 50 percent. so you, you're that's the agnostic state so that's the way i see it um, but it's it's just not true. Until I plugged in those numbers on May 5th, I didn't know what my cumulative total is. I refused to jumble them up in my head and make an overall judgment. That was the whole point of me using Bayes. I wanted to let the math tell me, look, I've done my work to get these inputs. What does it come out to? Does this work? Um, I was very methodical. I studied each evidence three times in increasing levels of depth just to ensure that I was getting proper numbers on the individual pieces of evidence then finally I threw it into Bayes theorem and it came out what it did and so I apportioned my belief accordingly uh, to 
the strength of the evidence as I saw it. So it's just not true that, oh, I, I was a secret Christian and I used Bayes to justify my beliefs. Um, that's total rubbish. As my friend, personal friend, Dr. Gary Habermas will attest, I was as skeptical as any of you atheists uh, in going after Christianity and probing it. For 10 years, I probed it with Gary and asked him all the skeptical questions. I, I was not a fake secret Christian who was just coming up with a way to justify my beliefs. I really did not believe. And in fact, in 2017, for a couple months, it looked like I was going to become a Muslim because I was actually favoring Islam based on the numerical patterns in the Quran. Uh, eventually that, that evidence fell apart uh, just because for lack of proof and that sort of thing on certain aspects. They couldn't prove, so it's basically I assess that with specified complexity. They couldn't prove the complexity aspect properly. Uh, so on that basis, I rejected it. Um, but yeah, uh, so I'll just say this. I, I was absolutely sincere in my disbelief and I didn't officially come to believe that Christianity was probably true until May 5th, 2018, when I got that 53.14% using Bayes. And I said, okay, this is great. Thank you for revealing the truth. And I put my faith in that accordingly. So uh, yeah, hopefully that clears that up. So, so let's move on to the next point. So now we get into the first argument that I provide, the Leibnizian cosmological argument, and or the argument from contingency. And uh, let's see, so the, the first objection here, uh, let's see how Tom raises a first objection to this. Sure, but anything could have the property of eternal, like the pineapple. A pineapple could have a property of eternal, we just don't know it yet. Um, well, I don't, I don't think so, given the essence of what a pineapple is, right? It, it, it just is something that inherently can be eaten, for example. So nope. Like, uh, so that's a presumption based on what you presume the definition of necessary entails. Like, maybe the necessary being could be eaten. There's no definition. Like, necessary is a made-up term. Like, we could apply whatever property as we want to it. There's no inherent truth to what necessary entails or doesn't entail. So pineapples could in fact be necessary. There could be a necessary pineapple that exists and it doesn't, the fact that it's eaten isn't the property of a pineapple. So that's not required. Or we could just add it into a property of necessary. Either one would work just fine. So you presupposing that necessary entails or does not entail these things is just kind of your made up definition. And there's no reason to think that would correspond to reality. So, so if I'm, you, you said for a second that a pineapple could be eaten um, and in that sense still be necessary. Yep. Um, I don't understand that because it, would, it wouldn't be eternal. It would be out of existence. The fact that it could that be eaten point. doesn't make it not eternal. So like there could be a past eternal pineapple that is a necessary thing and you could still eat it, but it could still have created the universe. So it could still be necessary and then it was the foundation of reality and created everything and then you, you could eat it in the future and that would be fine. So it doesn't need to be future eternal. It could be past eternal. It could be the thing that created everything and you could still potentially eat it. Like, I mean, like, um, what's it? The wafer thingy, the, the communion, you can eat oh. Jesus. Well, I'm not a Catholic, but, uh, <laughs> uh, hypothetically. Yes. Um, okay. So I would just, I would just argue that I, I think that that what you just said is wrong. Um, because how do we define, what does it mean for something to be necessary? It means that it's impossible for it not to exist, or if it's a proposition for it not to be true or something. It's got to be, we're kind of getting into the ontological. Oh, right, right. So I, I would reject that completely. You don't need a necessary thing that couldn't be otherwise. That's false. So you just need something to create the contingent universe. 
So it could be it could stop existing. That's fine. You can have I think it's called panentheism, where God created the universe out of himself and killed himself in the process. Uh, that's perfectly possible. There's no logical contradiction there. So you can have a necessary being that exists past eternally or, or in the outside of time in the past direction, but can destroy himself in the future direction and be perfectly fine. There's no inconsistency there. Okay, so it, it, this is uh, back to Real Seekers. Here's my commentary on what Tom. what Tom's first objection is here. He's basically fundamentally objecting to the definition of what it means for something to be necessary uh, in the sense of being a, a necessary cause of a contingent universe and, and in that context. And you hear about his uh, kind of example about a necessary pineapple. So the first thing to clarify here is, well, what, what does the word, what do we mean by necessary? in the context of this Leibnizian cosmological argument or argument from the contingency of the universe. Remember, Tom has granted both of my first premises that the universe is in fact contingent and requires an external cause, uh, a necessary cause, ultimately to explain the existence of the universe. He's grant, he's at least granted that for the sake of argument. So, so great, grand and groovy. So he's quibbling here. Well, what does it mean by necessary? So the, the first thing, it's, in, it's inherent in the definition of necessary. It's needed. It cannot not exist or be true in some relevant sense or in, within certain conditions. It's impossible for that not to exist. Not to exist or not to be, if it's a proposition, not to be true. And that is the inherent definition of the English word necessary. It's, it's obvious. And this is why every logician, everyone with a PhD, admits I'm right and that Tom Jump is wrong on this fundamental definition of necessary. Now, uh, it has to be clarified here that there are different senses. Remember I said it, it's impossible for this thing to, a necessary thing to not exist or a necessary proposition to be false um, within in a certain sense. So there are different senses in which we use the word necessary. And perhaps Tom is appealing to some kind of different sense of the word necessary. So in my argument from the cosmological argument here that I'm offering, I'm using the word necessary in the strict logically necessary sense. There's no logical contradiction kind of thing and, and that sort of thing. And that's where we get into modal logic. But there are other senses I just need to make you aware. So there's metaphysical or broad, logically broadly logically necessary things. So these are things where there's no logical contradiction, but yet it's infeasible for that thing to exist or for that proposition to be true. So even though there is no strict logical contradiction that's entailed in that notion, in that thing, entity's existence or that proposition's truth or something like that. So, you know, we get appeals to things like uh, Abraham Lincoln could have been a prime number. Well, that's there's no strict logical pro contradiction there, but it's it is log it's infeasible. Broadly speaking, it's impossible, metaphysically impossible, for Abraham Lincoln, a human being by essence, to be a prime number. Um, so that's another sense that is is used and stuff like that. But then there's another sense. There's factual necessity or sometimes physical necessity. And it could be that Tom has this in mind. Again, he didn't define his terms. 
So I don't know what he means, what his definition of necessary is, but factual necessity just says, well, given the facts, necessarily this will be the case. If I pour a bucket of water on your head, then factually, necessarily, you will be wet, or physical necessity. Given the laws of nature, if I pour a bucket of water over your head, it's physically necessary you will be wet. Um, so th those are, I just wanted to clarify that. And we're strictly talking about the, the logical necessity or perhaps the metaphysical necessity. We're not just appealing that there's a factually or physically necessary cause. It, this argument requires more than that because the universe is all of space and time and its contents. That includes everything physical. There is nothing physical outside of the universe. And again, the universe includes the multiverse, cosmos, any prior phases or anything like that. That's all included in the definition of universe in my argument. Again, I didn't get to define that because I didn't get to give my argument. So I kind of let Tom slide a bit on that and didn't correct him there. I just kind of went with the flow in the show. <laughs> in the flow in the show, I'm a poet and don't know it. Um, but but yeah, so I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. And this this is not just talking about there's a factually necessary cause. There is a logically necessary cause, and or at the very least a metaphysically necessary cause, broadly logical necessary cause. Uh, and I would even argue, no, there's a logical necessary cause that's needed to explain and or cause our contingent existing universe. So that's what the argument's trying to prove here. And in that sense, logical necessity this is just, again, obvious. We're saying, well, something is needed. It's impossible for it not to exist or to be true in a logical sense, that, in the sense that there is no contradiction, that it, it has to operate, that it has to be true, uh, given the laws of logic and the logical law of non-contradiction. So that's the definition of logical necessity and what I'm using in the argument here. Um, but now Tom, well, Tom comes back with an, another objection, but well, maybe there's a necessary pineapple. And let's pretend Tom is actually serious and meaning that, well, it's logically necessary. So what does it mean to be logically necessary um, in a modal sense, right? So beyond just saying this common sense definition that, well, it's impossible for it to exist given the laws of logic and the logical law of non-contradiction, uh, in a modal sense, that means it has to exist in every single logically possible world. Possible worlds are just abstract, or I would rather say mental, objects that exist in our heads. They're a total set of all propositions that are true and false. Sorry, a maximal set of propositions that are true and false relative to our actual world of the way things logically, within the laws of, log laws of logic, things could have been. And we can conceive of this. There are, in fact, provably, it's provable, there are logically possible worlds other than the actual world in which we exist. In the mental realm, at least, I'm not a modal realist. I'm not saying that these possible worlds, that there's a multiverse out there and they actually exist. I'm saying they actually exist as thoughts in our head. They're mental objects. Uh, if there are any concrete existence to them, great. I don't believe that. But at the very least, they exist mentally as these abstract sets of all maximal propositions, true or false, relative to ours, of the way things could be within the sense or in the context of the, law, the laws of logic applying and the logical law of non-contradiction being true. So in that sense, that, that's what modal philosophers say. Well, that means there's a bunch of possible worlds that fit within that range that 
we can envision in our heads as a maximal set of propositions of the way things could be given the parameters of assuming the laws of logic. So yes, there's nothing arbitrary about this. This is proven fact. We can do this. All logicians with PhDs agree with me that we can do uh, That's over-exaggeration. Most logicians and philosophers today since the 20th century have no issue with using this helpful modal terminology or semantics of possible worlds to help us explain what we mean by logically necessary. It's impossible for it not to exist um, given the laws of nature, given the laws of logic, sorry. Well, therefore, it means it exists in every possible world that we can conceive of given the laws of logic. This is straightforward. It's absolute proof. Um, my definition is right. Tom Jumps is wrong. If you can conceive of something not existing or a proposition not being true in a logically possible world, then that proposition or thing is not logically necessary. There are some possible worlds or some conditions on which that thing could not exist and or be false even though the laws of logic apply uh, or, or are given in that world, right? So think of it that think of it that way. The laws of logic are true, assumed to be true. Then that thing, <clears throat> then that thing must be true. It cannot not exist. That's all we're saying, and this is the standard definition. So I, I hope that clarifies that Tom's objection here doesn't work. But what about his necessary pineapple? Well, obviously that a, a pineapple is not logically necessary if it can be inherently eaten or it can. I can conceive of the necessary pineapple not existing, for example, um, through being eaten. And he's and Tom Jump came. So eternality is an essential element of net of something being logically necessary. If it's not eternal, if it could possibly not exist when the laws of logic are present, then it's not necessary, as we saw in the definition. Well, if if we eat a pineapple and it ceases to exist, then obviously it's not logically. Um, it's not eternal and therefore it's not logically necessary and Tom Jump came back and said well maybe it's not future eternal maybe it's past eternal right so we can have some notion of possibilism which is a hybrid of the A theory of time and B theory of time it says the past is actually infinite and the future is just potentially infinite and we'll get into that uh, a little bit more because Tom was um, a little bit off on his notion of infinity but let's pretend let's pretend this is is the case you need both past eternality and future eternality in order to be logically necessary. You can't just be past eternal because then by definition the laws of logic are applying in the future and yet that thing isn't existing. It's possible for that thing not to exist given the conditions that the laws of logic are in place. That means it's not logically necessary. The laws of logic do not necessarily entail that that thing, that that pineapple exists Therefore, it's not necessary. So, Tom, this this necessary pineapple is a complete misnomer. It fails um, even if we grant that it was past eternal. Um, that doesn't eternal uh, things can be contingent, but necessary things cannot be non-eternal or cannot fail to exist in the sense that the, the, we're saying it's necessary, right? Um, likewise, with given the laws of nature. Uh, you cannot, it's impossible for you to not be wet if I pour a bucket of water on you, um, given the f 
uh, laws of nature. So that's a physical, out of physical necessity. If the laws of nature are, are granted, as we have them in this universe are granted, and I pour a bucket of water over your head, necessarily, physically necessarily, or, and or factually necessarily, you will be wet. It's impossible for you to not be wet, given those conditions. Uh, and that's all I'm saying here, except instead of the laws of nature being, and you know the condition of pouring the bucket over your head as being the assumptive conditions, here we're saying it's necessary, given the laws of nature, that's the given. If the laws of nature apply, then necessarily the pineapple will have to exist. And since it can be eaten, there's a there's a time where the laws of nature apply and the pineapple's not there, therefore it's not logically necessary, even if we assume it's past eternal. And sorry, just to clarify, I just said that wrong. So given the laws of logic, not the laws of nature, the laws of logic, that pineapple uh, has to be, is needed to be there. It's nece logically necessary that if the laws of logic are true, they necessarily entail the existence of that pineapple at all times, not just for eternity in the past, but for the eternity in the future. And if that thing can be eaten and not exist at, uh, you know, five minutes from now, it's not logically necessary. The laws of logic are there, but they don't logically entail that that pineapple is there and necessarily there. So yeah, Tom, Tom Jump is wrong. If he grants me that pineapples can inherently be eaten, and even if they're past eternal, then that proves I'm right. They're not logically necessary. And it's not even just about being eaten, right? We can envision worlds without that, without any pineapples in it at all. And there's no problem with that. There is no such thing as a necessarily existent pineapple. Um, so we can conceive quite clearly that there is no such thing. So yeah, that's my take on that. Uh, but let's let's move on to the next substantive objection on the cosmological argument that um, that he gives here. So Tom kind of admits, I, I kind of say, well, you can conceive of a world where the he, he says, well, what, what's a possibility for this necessary cause or explanation of the universe? You say, well, it's a necessary being God. And I say, well, no, it's the necessary, logically necessary quantum fields. Uh, that's, or some kind of physical state. And here, here's how we go back and forth on that. Yeah, my, my argument is, is that we can have a necessary thing which just isn't God. It's just, there's like, there's no definitive definition of what a necessary thing is. You just have an opinion of what you think a necessary thing is. I can present an alternative definition, which is equally or more likely to be the correct definition. And so even if we grant the cosmological argument, it would be more evidence of my position of natural, naturalistic pantheism or a quantum field than it would of a god of any kind. Okay, so uh, with the quantum fields then, I would just argue, I would come back and say, well, I don't think that those are are necessary in any sense of the word because what are quantum fields, right? Uh, yeah, do you what are quantum fields in your view? Not sure what you mean. It's a field. Quantum fields are a field. What? Okay. Okay. Um, can can they exist independently of subatomic particles or yes. whatever? Okay. Um, so I would disagree with you on that. So I. I take what's called a causal dispositions theory of the laws of nature or, or fields and that sort of thing. They, um, 
basically are just descriptions, mathematical descriptions of uh, physical things um, that exist. Sure. Um, okay, so you would agree with, with that. Yep. Okay, so then using modal logic, we, we can conceive of a possible world where those particles don't exist altogether. I can conceive of a world where God doesn't exist altogether, so that would also disprove your God. Well, I would need to come back on that, but uh, sorry, you you would admit then that in the first place, particle you can conceive of worlds without those particles or with different particles or something. Sure, you're, you're saying yes. Sure, and I can okay. conceive of different worlds with different gods and no god. Right, but okay. So, so would you admit then that that means these things are not necessary? And yes, by implication, if it's true what you say about God, the same would be true of him. But with the particles are you uh, saying no so my definition of necessary doesn't entail uh the fact that you can't imagine it otherwise like that's just completely made up there's no reason to think that is a requirement in any kind of necessary thing so saying that we could imagine something a different way is not evidence that it has some kind of real property you're conflating imaginary properties imaginary uh components to what we we think and saying that our imagination and somehow entails some property related to the thing itself uh, which is false like no our ability to like we can literally imagine anything to be otherwise other than like well you we can literally imagine anything to be otherwise so there is no such thing as a thing that cannot be imagined to be otherwise what about what about numbers can you imagine yep. one plus one not equaling two in the same yep. sense common sense yep. mathematics? there are okay. all kinds of contradictory logics and contradictory maths that we can imagine being the case but that's in a different like you're talking about something like fuzzy logic or you know different base base maths or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like we can imagine there's a universe where two plus two equals five. Poof, done. So I so I can't. Um, and I, I would just in the same sense as the ordinary audience members are talking about two plus two well necessarily equals four. It's logically impossible for it to equal that and I, I think that is proven through our modal evaluating faculty so i kind of equate if we can imagine it then it's conceivable now i, I can conceive of a universe where two plus two equals five okay um i i don't believe you um but there's nothing i can say to to kind of prove you wrong about that okay, well, everybody can imagine a universe without the christian god that's easy that's there's no logical contradiction there so if you want to just go from that one Okay, so my, in terms of my commentary, I thought this was the best objection that Tom Jump gave during the debate, and it was the the one we spent quite a bit of time on. And it's it's his saying, "Look, I, I fully agree with you. You're right. He conceded defeat to me on the in terms of the cosmological argument, proving that for him, under my definition of logically necessary, and I've defended my definition as the correct one uh, in this review show here." Um, well then, on that definition of logically necessary, naturalism, this mystery physical state that he just arbitrarily says, well, that's necessary, is not by definition logically necessary because he can conceive of worlds where the physical things that make up this physical state do not exist, but yet the laws of logic exist. Therefore, uh, it can't be that. Uh, so he's conceded total defeat to the Christian on this front. There is no necessary naturalism. He's admitted this because naturalism ultimately reduces down to laws of nature, blah, 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 and those reduce down to 
the causal dispositions of physical things, he can conceive of worlds where those physical things do not exist, therefore they're not logically necessary. The logic, laws of logic apply to all logically possible worlds, yet within a logically, at least one or more logically possible worlds, Tom Jump himself admits, yeah, I can conceive that there's no physical things there. Um, game over. The atheists lose, if you want to argue for naturalism. But his interesting substantive argument here is he flips that and says, okay, let's pretend that works. I can conceive of a possible world where your God doesn't exist and or the Christian God specifically doesn't exist. Um, and to which I replied, well, that's just impossible. You cannot conceive that. And one thing I just want to note here, so with God, I have 100% absolute knowledge that God exists through the various positive evidences. So I can make an absolute claim, no, it's logically impossible for him to say that a maximally great being does not exist. And I know that with absolute certainty and can claim that. When it comes to the objection about the Christian God specifically, well, there I don't have 100% degree of warrant. I'm only, you know, right now, I, when I converted, 53.14%. Now it's probably somewhere in the 70s, mid to high 70s at most percentile mark, given how I've grown in the faith over the past few years and the more evidence I've become familiar with and that sort of thing. And God has opened my eyes um, to the strength of the evidences in certain cases. Um, this, I have to admit, I need to water down my claim. I made it too strong of a claim against Tom Jump and saying, well, you can't. I should have said, well, you probably, to whatever degree, 70% or 53.14%, you probably, or it's improbable that you can conceive of a possible world without the Christian God in it because the Christian God is a is the one true maximal great being. He's logical necessity is entailed in his inherent definition. Therefore, he exists in every possible world. But it was a bit tricky for me because he's saying, well, I'm just claiming I can conceive it. And how can you respond? I'm not privy to Tom Jump's conceptions, just like he's not privy to my conceptions. My claiming to you as an outsider that I can conceive of this or that is really not helpful if I just appeal to the subjective conception itself unless it's accompanied with objective arguments and that sort of thing. And I should have appealed to more to the, the objective arguments because I essentially, based on the evidence, given the Christian God exists, he exists necessarily. And on that front, there's a logical, hidden logical contradiction entailed in saying, well, I can conceive of, a, of the, non -exist, the possible non-existence of a logically necessary thing. Um, no, you can't conceive that. So therefore, I, I, knowing that probably the Christian God exists in all possible worlds, would have to say, well, he's either deluded or he's lying about this claim of his conceptions or of what he can conceive of and or imagine and that sort of thing. And I want, to, I want you guys to understand, so there is that difference between the epistemic and the ontological uh, claim here, right? So there's a difference between just saying, well, for all I know, because I, I'm not privy to all the relevant evidence, for all I know, maybe God doesn't, the Christian God isn't true or doesn't exist. Maybe it's Allah or something like that. And the absolute ontological claim, which is a, requires a burden of proof on your part to say Allah does not exist 
or it's possible, sorry, that Allah does not exist, or there's a possible world where the Christian God does not exist, and Tom's, Tom Jump is just reflecting me and just saying, well, what's your evidence to meet that burden of proof? I can conceive of it, and I accept conceptions as valid evidence when I have them, because I'm privy to that subjective evidence. I'm not privy to Tom Jump's subjective evidence, and this is why it was totally meaningless and a failure to me. It, it doesn't refute my warrant for believing that God is logically necessary, and and or that probably the Christian God is logically necessary in any way. Um, all he's highlighting, so yeah, I, I just dismiss his conceptions. I don't believe you if you say you can imagine it. No, you can't. You're deluded or you're uh, lying. And I attempted to try and expose that Tom Jump was either lying or deluded in his saying, well, I can conceive of a possible world where naturalism is true, where there is no God, no maximal great being at all, and or possible worlds where the Christian God um, isn't true, that that's an equal possibility or even more probable than not. I don't know what strength he would attach to his conceptions of this possible possibility of the Christian God's non-existence. Um, but yeah, it, it's just his word versus mine. There's nothing I can say to refute it except to prompt within him that, well, you're kind of, you're deluded. You're like David Hume. He said he could imagine this, but then we found out that was total rubbish. He was wrong. He was not conceiving it. He was imagining something else and falsely attributing, deriving a conclusion about a totally different proposition. And I was trying to coax that out of Tom Jump to see, well, you say you're imagining naturalism. Maybe you're just imagine, focused on well, I can imagine the natural world. Of course, it exists. It's the actual world. We see it. We, Of course, it's conceivable. But that isn't the same as conceiving of naturalism. You know, it, and I gave the example. It's kind of like me saying, well, I can conceive of a world where I'm wearing a red shirt. I'm just focused on that. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not wearing pants or that it's inconceivable that I'm wearing pants or something as well. So it, my conceiving of my wearing a red shirt doesn't also entail the proposition and I'm not wearing pants or something. No, of course it's conceivable for me to be wearing pants and, and a red shirt and stuff like that. But it's just I, I was conceiving of my red shirt and perhaps I said, well, I, I just conceived of the red shirt. So therefore, I, w I must not have been wearing anything apart from the red shirt. Uh, no, you can't make that jump. That's You're deriving a false conclusion based on misapplying what your, your conception is really about. And that's what I was trying to coax out of Tom Jump. U ultimately, you know, that failed. Uh, again, I, I can't say 100% certainty, no, you're false, because I'm not 100% certain that the Christian God is true. So it's possible he could be right. Maybe he is conceiving, unbeknownst to me, of a possible world where the Christian God is false um, and I, I just don't I think that's probably false um, but it's possible I'm wrong it's I'm possible that the Christian God is thing when he says that he can conceive of the naturalism world not just the natural world but naturalism world there is no God a possible world where there's no maximal great being he's absolutely wrong 100% knowledge I know for a fact he's deluded or lying because I myself conceive with 100% degree of warrant that a maximal great being exists. And that's both in a subjective, properly basic way, based on my conceptions, but also from an ontological argument, an objective argument that proves 
objectively that such a being must exist as well. Um, so I have both subjective and objective warrant for knowing that no, Tom Jump cannot imagine or conceive of a, a world without a maximal great being in it. And I also have sufficient warrant to say that he's probably not able to imagine a world, a possible world without the Christian God in it. And it's important to imagine. So Tom Jump kind of made mistakes too. He says, well, I can imagine a world where Jesus, certain contingent things about God are different. So let's pretend I can, I can imagine a world where Jesus doesn't come down incarnate or die for our sins. Of course. Yeah. There's a possible world where God exists alone without any creation. That's possible. So there, there are certain conceptions or, or notions about God that are essential and others that are accidental or contingent attributes. And we can imagine possible worlds where God is different based on the contingent features, but he's, his essential attributes are the same in every single. That's what's logically necessary. He's a trinity. That's every in every possible world. You cannot imagine a world where God is not a trinity if Christianity is true. And since I've got warrant to think it's probably true, this is the grounds of which I say it's probably impossible for you to say you can conceive of it. Um, but again, I could be wrong. I don't have 100% knowledge in this respect. Um, so yeah, it, it ultimately just comes down to an us versus them. And you have to appeal to our secular our objective arguments to show that, well, you claim this, but you're actually wrong. And this is where I appeal to natural theology arguments, such as the one that I, I'm going to give next and we'll, we'll cover next, where I argue for the personhood of this necessary cause of the universe so that rules out naturalism if i can prove objectively that the necessary cause has to be personal then we obviously know tom jump was lying or deluded when he said well i can conceive of a necessary naturalism no you can't because i can prove objectively that that naturalism has to be a person and that the naturalism you said quantum fields are non-personal um, so obviously you can't conceive of a necessary, uh, necessary non-personal cause of the universe when I can prove objectively that there is a necessary personal cause. And so on and so forth with God's other attributes or appealing to other arguments like the ontological argument to prove that he's a maximally great being and stuff like that. So in that way, you can show you can show through objective evidence, well, no, you claim to have this conception, but actually you do not you must be conceiving of something else and you're misattributing it or misapplying it. So those are the, the two ways that I would go about it. And in the show, I first attempted the first way to try to cajole him into realizing what, be specific, what is it you're actually conceiving of? It's, is it actually naturalism you're claiming to conceive of? Or is it really just you're conceiving of a world, the natural world and focused only on that and not con conceiving about whether or not there's the additional and God is there and or no God exists in that world. Um, so that's what I was attempting to do. Rem remember that red shirt, right? I can conceive that red shirt. That doesn't entail that I'm also conceiving of the fact that I've got no pants on. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that's what I wanted to say there, but yeah, let, let's, okay. So let's continue on with, with Tom jumps argument here. Okay, so so that that's fine. Let's but just stick with that. So without any of the supplemental arguments, the Kalam or the cosmological on its own tells you nothing about the qualities of a god. 
exactly yeah it requires supplemental like there are implications from it okay okay so so that's great so if we're just looking at the cosmological it works equally as well for naturalism as it does theism and you need some other argument that isn't the kalam or cosmological and for that to be evidence first before the cosmological does anything so it looks like the cosmological on its own is nothing it's zero evidence one way or the other you need this other thing first for it to actually be evidence uh, the only thing I would dispute with you there is it doesn't work for naturalism because how are we defining the universe? It's all of space and time and its contents. So that includes your quantum vacuum states as the initial. No. So state. so those are outside of space time. So in physics, there are things outside of space time. Space time is an emergent of some other fundamental things. The universe is just our observable universe. And everybody in physics, the consensus is, is that there is more stuff beyond our universe. A, a quantum but it's including the quantum vacuum state, which is a physical state. And I would argue what? it is with, within time as well. I have a different view of time. Well, you, that you can have you can have your own subjective view of time. It just disagrees with physics. So physics says time is a thing in our universe. There could be other things outside of our universe that are outside of time. Space time is literally emergent, so there are literally things outside of time. Your conception of time doesn't make a difference here. What we're asking is, is does the cosmological argument indicate theism over naturalism the answer is no as far as i can tell because there it could equally be the case that there is natural things outside of time as non-natural things supernatural supernatural things okay and by space you mean classical space time is that correct i mean or the you... only kind supported by physics the only kind supported by physics is what so the the initial what what sort of model are you are you going for i'm not i'm not sort of understanding like do you go an eternal inflation model or quantum gravity type model like those are theories of quantum mechanics those aren't theories of the fundamental nature of reality no they're they're theory they're models they're not theories they're so models. inflation oh. is is a theory eternal inflation is a theory that the 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 stuff in space-time is continuing to expand continuously it doesn't tell us anything about the fundamental nature of reality uh, quantum gravity again is just trying to bridge gravity and quantum mechanics it has nothing to do with the fundamental nature of reality neither of those have anything to do with the fundamental nature of reality that's not those are not answering those questions so i'm saying there is a fundamental nature to reality the necessary thing which is a natural non-conscious thing you're saying it's a conscious thing the col the cosmological argument provides no justification to support one over the other so far in what you've presented Okay, so so far, yeah, and let, let me, is it okay if I just say something correct a little bit on what you said about the, the models or something? Because it, it doesn't address your point about the fundamental cause or explanation, but just understand, we, we have modern scientific evidence and singularity theorems, right? So the, for example, there's no, singularity. there's no singularity. The singularity hypothesis was debunked by Hawking a long time ago. Singularity is not a thing anymore but but, the, but these are all just very specific theories in physics which have nothing to do with the topic at hand like that's like saying ah oh, there's a proton theory ah yes the, the protons exist okay but it's not we're not talking about protons we're talking about the fundamental nature of reality so talking about specific things that exist in physics isn't talking about the fundamental nature of reality those are two separate things well yes i i but i need i wanted to figure out from you uh, because Allegedly, so so here's one model to to explain why I think I wanted to understand your 
position. I'm not trying to be difficult or anything, but so for example, there are five uh, exceptions to the singularity theorems and with the VG singularity theorem, there are four exceptions. And by appealing to these, you can posit a past eternal universe. So well, there's, there's not four exceptions. That's not how it works. The, the BGV theorem has assumptions. And if you dismiss the assumptions, then you can dismiss the theorem. So this is, again, has nothing to do with anything I said. It has nothing to do with the topic. The topic is, is can there be an answer to the contingency argument, which is not a mind? The answer is yes. And no, I don't need to reference anything in physics. Nothing in physics matter. The entire field of physics is irrelevant here. So I don't know why you're bringing that up. So, so, so Again, the contingency argument says there's a necessary thing. I say there's a necessary thing with no mind. You said there's one with a mind, and we're saying, yeah. why should we prefer one over the other? Physics doesn't matter here. Physics is completely irrelevant. Okay, well, I, I wish I could, could have established my point, but yeah, it's your show, so I, I will move on if, if you feel I'm kind of avoiding that. But that would have helped me to understand exactly what you mean by this fundamental state that you're positing but i have just no details so let me try well, the to details again details don't matter either like it doesn't need to be a specific hypothesis i can just say there is a necessary thing which doesn't have in mind period full full stop that's it okay so in terms of uh, my commentary here uh back to the real seekers um okay so in the first place tom jump just he doesn't understand modern physics or cosmology and that was obvious to me during the show um and all of the false things he was saying and he, he didn't really understand what he was talking about with uh, singularity theorems or the various eternal models. Uh, so I mentioned eternal uh, inflationary models and he says, well, eternal inflation is about a super rapid expansion rate at the beginning of the universe. Yeah, that's inflation theory in general, but people have used inflation theory to come up with eternal inflation models of where the universe is said to be past eternal. Um, quantum gravity models are uh, models of the universe where it's past eternal based on quantum gravity, such as semi-classical models of Stephen Hawking or Alexander Vilenkin, or there are loop quantum gravity models, or there are string theory-based models um, that all fall within the quantum gravity, eternal quantum gravity type cosmological models. Those are directly relevant to the fundamental state of the universe because Tom Jump is saying, well, there's a physical state, natural physical state of a universe made of physical things that is eternal and necessary in the past. And that's his counter to, well, the necessary non-material, non-physical thing, God, the person, made the universe. So it, it is relevant for me to ask, okay, well, what exactly model are you talking about here? Because he wants to leave that unspecified and just say, well, there's this... Uh, natural thing that's necessary composed of necessary physical things. Remember, he agreed with me on the laws of nature. There are no quantum fields or whatever. There are just physical things, particles, that have certain causal dispositions, and they exist necessarily in his view, which I disproved because he can conceive of them not existing given the laws of nature. But putting that aside, uh, putting that objection aside, okay, we've got these things he claims are necessary, and they're physical things. Uh, or particles that exist with certain causal dispositions. So giving me an idea of what kinds of models he has in mind would help, he didn't want to specify that. Um, so that's fine. Um, but I just want to clarify, he has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to the sing hawking penrose singularity theorems or the BVG singularity theorem. The BVG singularity theorem has one assumption, just one, 
that on average the universe is in a state of cosmic expansion. That's it. And there are four exceptions to that upon which eternal cosmological models are based to avoid the singularity. There are infinite contraction models. There is the asymptotically static cosmological models that I mentioned in the show. Um, there are time deconstruction models, so like Dr. Sean Carroll, that's the thing he goes for. Um, so, so Tom Jump was just, he doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to the science. And that was obvious to me in the show, that's, that's fine. I didn't know anything about it until I did the detailed research and re read the actual scientific peer-reviewed papers for my solo show on Cosmological Argument Parts 3A and 3B, where I actually go into the science of cosmology and prove that the universe probably began to exist based alone on the scientific and physical evidence. So it's Im I can say it's improbable that the universe was physically necessary, was around physically for all of eternity. But getting outside of that, um, so Tom Jump's main objection in this section here, and it's a good one, it's, it, it's not an objection, but it's just kind of, look, the cosmological argument in terms of the three premises that I gave can only take us so far. And this is why I, I don't argue for God, I argue for the God one hypothesis. It avoids the gap problem entirely. It just says whatever is entailed or can be uh, implicated through supplemental ar attached argumentation about the properties of this ultimate explanation or first cause of our contingent universe. Um, that's what the God one hypothesis says. So it, it completely bypasses the gap problem. Whatever can be proven can be proven. And that's all that God one, the God one hypothesis stipulates. So number one, we both Tom Jump and I agree that whatever this ultimate explanation is, this God one hypothesis is, it's a necessary explanation. We both agree with that, that far. But then I also said without supplemental argumentation, there are additional things. We can tell that it is in fact spaceless. That's proven through this art, through the cosmological argument. And Space, physical things cannot exist outside of space. Impossible for them to exist outside of space altogether. They need three dimensions to exist to be what they are. Um, that's just a modern atomic theory and that sort of thing. It, he's wrong about that. It can exist outside of classical space-time for sure, and perhaps outside of our time thing. Perhaps physical things could exist in a hyper-time dimension and or timelessly, whatever you want to say. Um, a lot of scientists say that it exists outside of that. So it exists spacelessly and timelessly, at least in our sense of the word, our dimension of time. I didn't want to get into refuting hypertime and, and stuff like that. I, I've refuted that in my part two uh, uh, solo show on the cosmological argument. But okay, so those are two properties that are directly implied through this cosmological argument. It is beginningless. It is eternal. It is changeless, uh, temporally changeless, unless you posit the hyper time thing. Um, it's also immaterial because we define the universe as all of space and time and its contents. There's nothing physical or material that exists if we're saying to explain the universe or to cause the universe externally because the universe includes the definition of everything that's physical. There's nothing physical outside of the universe to cause the physical. That's part of the definition of universe in my argument. Um, so he, yeah, and I, again, I didn't get to explain that. So I, again, we had to kind of go with that because I didn't get to clarify my terms or lay out my argument properly. So that that's forgivable on, on his end. Um, but 
as well it's in, in order to create the universe you have to be enormously powerful another attribute of this necessary cause these are all directly entailed and implied by my cosmological argument themselves so given these properties, then we can attach supplemental argumentation. Tom Jump's absolutely right. In order to get the personhood of God, there has to be supplemental arguments that attach to the cosmological argument and the implied properties of that, uh, the properties that are implied of that first cause or that ultimate explanation uh, in order to say, well, and it's a person. It's, you know, I gave one argument. One of, I had many, three, at least three arguments to give. I only gave one. Uh, I was only able to give one in the show, which we'll get to next, hopefully. But um, as well, the Jerome Gelman has proven that the ultimate cause must be one and uh, omnipotent. It has not just the attribute of being enormously powerful, but he, with a supplemental argumentation, he can prove that he's omnipotent. And I'm going to get into this in my cosmological argument solo series part five video where I, I lay out all of the arguments and what I what I make of them these supplemental arguments that attach themselves to the implication the properties that are implied by the cosmological argument proper the three premises I give here um, but yeah that, that's all I have to say about this other than that yeah Tom Tom is not absolutely right he, he kind of exaggerates when he says well nothing can be proven that's total rubbish there are multiple properties that are implied directly through the cosmological argument proper, the three premises that we get. And on the basis of those implied properties, we can attach supplemental argumentation and derive further properties like agency or personhood, omnipotence, uh, the oneness, or some people try to argue the simplicity, divine simplicity property can be argued and stuff like that. We, we attach metaphysical or inductive arguments to the implied property using the implied properties that we get from the cosmological argument proper. And in that sense, we we can derive further properties. So, but yeah, um, that does, those additional properties definitely require supplemental arguments. They're not entailed directly on the truth of the cosmological argument proper, at least not with the three premises that I use in my, my argument from contingency there. So that's absolutely right. Okay, so now we get into my uh, first and only argument, supplemental argument whereby I try to argue for the personhood or agency based on God needing to, God's having libertarian free will. And that's the only way that we could have, that the universe could have come into existence 13.82 billion years ago. If Tom Jump's necessary, natural, physical state, uh, whereby there was necessary and sufficient conditions present for all eternity, then the universe could, must be eternal. It's exist, it should have existed eternally in our space-time, in our expansion, FRW phase of the universe, you know, the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, that's the scientists there, the, the probe that, that measured that, that's what the FRW stands for, the scientists' names there, but um, it would have existed for all of eternity in the phase that we observe it. Space-time, classical space-time universe would have been eternal in the past that we understand it today. Uh, but that's not true. It only came into existence 13.82 billion years ago. That's what all the science proves. Mathematics proves. Therefore, Tom Jump's state is falsified. Only a necessary cause that is personal and has libertarian free will uh, could explain the universe. Um, so here, here's kind of a long portion of me giving that argument. Tom Jump gives his first little objection uh, to this about God's about the nature of determination uh, he has an arbitrary and false definition of what it means to be determined 
and he tries to apply that, well, isn't God determined? So let me not take anything out of context before I respond. Let me just post the clip here. Um, okay, um, so, so yeah, I'll, I'll throw out the ones that William Lane Craig gives then and see what you make of those um, for the agency or personhood. Um, so in the first place, if one argument is if we had an eternal uh, universe with the natural state where they had the necessary and sufficient conditions always being present, um, it would be impossible for the universe as we know it with our in our space time it, and that sort of thing to just come into existence 13.82 billion years ago. Um, because, you know, if the necessary and sufficient conditions are present, that necessarily entails the effect and would cause it. So the, the only way out of that, and this is where the agency comes in, according to Dr. William and Craig, is, well, the only way to avoid that, to have the necessary and sufficient conditions present, but not have the effect until it is through libertarian free will. And this, what, what type of thing, beings or things have libertarian free will? Only agents, only persons have that. So that's one argument. That uh, so I wasn't following there. So the so the universe exists, poof. We needed something to create it. And it could have been created by a quantum field just fine. Randomness, if randomness is a thing, it could have been created by randomness. If it was determined, it could have been determined just fine. Where is the problem here? So, so you're saying, so in this fundamental, in your fundamental state, the necessary and sufficient conditions are present for all eternity in this hypertime thing, right? There's a necessary being, and the necessary being can create our universe, it, right? Yeah. So, 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 so God is the necessary and sufficient condition, and it, it exists. And in mine, na a natural quantum field is the necessary and sufficient thing, and it can create the universe, and it exists outside of space-time. Yes, but, but non-personal... Yes agents without free will they yep. can't invoke libertarian they can't they don't have a dual ability right if, if right the, we obviously they don't have liber so there's no free will in this but uh, there's no need so it could be determined by its own nature to do something just like god is determined by his own nature or it could be random there could be a randomness thing that literally exists in reality that could cause it either of those could explain the creation of the universe just fine but well, I, okay. So, so I would disagree personally that God's nature is determined um, personally. But that, yeah, it's beside the point. He, he's a libertarian, free will agent. I would argue. Um, but in can God I, choose his nature? Can God choose his nature? Um, no, I don't think he can. That's it's. So that means no it's determined. Well, there's no. Well, I'll put it this way: there's no feasible. Um, world where he can change his nature or has the power to click his thumbs and change his nature. But what does the word determined mean? What does the word determined mean? It means that you're externally determined through a prior chain of causal... No, it just means you can't change it. It just means it's unable to be changed. No prior anything. I don't care about prior stuff. It can't be changed. God can't change it. It's determined. God can change it then. How about that? He's, it's strictly logically possible. There's no logical contradiction in supposing God has the power to change his nature. That doesn't so, so, so if God is making decisions, and God is making decisions like his choiceness is based on his nature, can he make a decision like about his nature before he had a nature to make the decision? 
Well, I mean, so, so in the first place, there are certain requirements in order for someone to make a free will choice. That doesn't mean that they're determining factors. You, you have to have a intelligence, right? You have to have uh, a nature, that sort of thing. You have to be a person in order to have libertarian free will. Those are necessary components, but their presence don't mean that they're sufficient to determine one's choice, right? That's the whole point of so, so the question is, is, could God choose to not have those things and still have choices? The answer would be no, right? He needs those things to have choices in the first place. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So parts of his nature are determining his choice. Like, like well, his ability to have choices is determined by his nature, and he couldn't choose to not have those things because that would lead to a contradiction. His, so his nature doesn't determine it. it the the words I would use, they, they impress upon, they influence his decisions, but they don't determine, determine them. Can God choose his own nature? It's strictly logically possible. Yeah. So, so you get rid of his, his intelligence and still have a choice. No. He, so he can't, he can't choose his own nature. There are things about his nature. He cannot choose. He cannot change that are determined. Yeah. Yes. There, there are certain necessary components that he can't, choose to get rid okay. of and still have free will, yes. Right, so so he has a determined nature, and so does mine, and they can both cause stuff, like the universe or whatever. No, that's, it's, what, are you saying he's determined to have the nature or intelligence yes. before he? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so he has some that's... property, he's determined to have this property, he can't choose this property, this property is inherently in the godness, Mine also has inherent properties. Yeah, but like, the, the the choice. So let's focus on what Dr. Tamar Shapiro calls. Well, wait, so, so I'm saying that the the inherent properties can entail something like a quantum field or quantum randomness or a way to create the universe. Like any of these can be entailed properties instead of intelligence. You don't need intelligence to be your entailed property. And so you can have a, something to create the universe without intelligence just fine. Like you just any determined uh, property to do that would be fine. Just pick your property randomness quantum field whatever and they could all create the universe without intelligence or choice uh yeah so so i would just yeah i, I would disagree with that like when we're focusing on the moment of drama it's the ch nature of the choice it doesn't matter what factors go into that or not right if it's his nature intelligence yes those are necessary factors they're not determining factors they're just influences right well again so i'm saying there is no choice in mind so you have a choice model which isn't yes. even possible but i don't want to go into that yet i have a non-choice model you have some properties inherent in the god's nature that cause him to have this choice thingy i have mm -hmm. some properties in my uh quantum field which have it have the properties to create the universe with no choice just fine so so the question here is like why do we need choice because it seems like you can create the universe with no choice just fine yes absolutely they they have the ability the causal thing but here's where here's where the problem comes in in favor of this is why it's an argument for the agency for the for my option because if your option was true it's it's all determined without agency no intelligence no natures blah 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 well they have natures but um they're not persons so there isn't anything that would allow them the ability to refrain from creating. The universe should be eternal. The universe as we see it, as long as those necessary determining factors, as you call them, are present, the universe has to exist eternally, but it's only 13 billion years old. Okay, so just stepping in with uh, some commentary on this, in this section here. Uh, so essentially, 
Tom jumps uh, is misunderstanding the argument. He he has a false understanding of what determinism means. I'm right, he's wrong. Period. That uh, my definition is correct. There's different forms of determinism: physical determinism, causal determinism, uh, logical determinism, stuff like that. So determinism just means that you are determined, absolutely, totally determined. Uh, totally, remember that word, totally determined by prior causes in a causal chain. Prior, th the fact that William the Conqueror won in 1066 totally determined my choice today to eat a cookie for breakfast, whatever it is, or to wear sunglasses, and whatever, I don't know. Um, that's what determinism means. It does not mean guaranteed, which is uh, Tom Jump's false definition of determinism. He just means, well, the result is guaranteed. That's his definition of determinism. That's just a false definition. No philosopher or logician in the world believes that or says that's the definition of determined. So there's there's kind of a difference in definition definitions going on here, and that's partly causing the problem. But secondly, so the way God works, right? So if God existed timelessly and or in a hyper-time dimension for all eternity, why didn't creation exist eternally? Instead, it only came into existence, our universe, our space-time, blah, 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 came into existence 13.82 billion years ago. The only reason is because God is a libertarian, free will agent who made a choice to choose to create 13.82 billion years ago. Um, that's the only reason, because free will agents have what is called under, there's five conditions for freedom. The ability condition, the control condition, the rationality condition, the notion of agent causation versus event-to-event -event causation, as well as uh, the person as a substance as opposed to just a property thing. Um, so these are the five elements. And I was mentioning the ability condition. Libertarian free will agents have a dual ability. The ability to will to do something, to choose to create, to will to create, or to refrain from willing to create despite all of the necessary and sufficient causal conditions being present for all of eternity to create the universe. Nonetheless, you can be a prime mover and refrain from creating and then create at a certain specified later time, even though you had all of the necessary and sufficient causal conditions present for all of eternity, uh, either timelessly or for all of eternity throughout hypertime, whatever model you want to go. Tom Jump wants to go for hypertime. Contrastively, physical objects that existed for all of eternity and had the necessary and sufficient conditions to create the universe do not have a dual ability. They just are non-persons without libertarian free will. Therefore, it necessarily follows. If the conditions are present, necessary and sufficient conditions of the antecedent are present, therefore necessarily the effect will or consequent will happen necessarily the universe will be existed if this quant necessary quantum field existed and was sufficient necessary and sufficient for creating a universe then necessarily the universe should have existed eternally but it doesn't factually it only came into existence 13.82 billion years ago and physical stuff that's non-personal doesn't have the ability to refrain from willing to cr create its consequent or effect and Tom Jump agreed with me later on. Perhaps I'll quote him here. He, he agrees with me when I phrase it that way, right? If I, if I pour a bucket of water over your head, that's the antecedent with necessary and sufficient conditions. Necessarily, the consequent will obtain. You will be wet. Okay? So it, it, it can't, you can't refrain from being wet 
if I pour a bucket of water over your head in this universe where our laws of nature apply. Um, you have no libertarian free will choice to refrain from that because physics, physics just does what it's determined to do by the prior conditions being present in the laws of nature. So that's, that's the argument here in, in a nutshell of what I'm getting, and there's that fundamental difference. Now, Tom Jump raises this uh, odd objection that shows, a, I think, a misunderstanding on his part. He says, yeah, but you believe God, as a libertarian free will agent, has to have certain necessary um, and sufficient conditions for him to be a free will agent. He has to be intelligent. He has to be a person uh, in order to be a free will agent. If you're not those things then you're, you're, if those things, those things are determinative of being a free will agent, right? They're necessary, sufficient conditions taken together, intelligence, personhood, rationality, whatever, you have the abilities, um, blah, 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 whatever those conditions are, those are necessary and sufficient conditions for you to be a free will agent. And I said, yes, absolutely, you're right. Those are determining causes for the effect of having libertarian free will. But he's totally missing the point those things are not determining determinative isn't those factors are determinative of him being a free will agent they determine that they don't determine what choice the free will agent will choose to make with his libertarian free will in any given instance we're focused on the moment of what dr tamar shapiro calls the moment of drama here that instant you make a free will choice is the choice determined or not and there it's not determined by my intelligence, by my nature, anything like that. So can God change his nature is totally irrelevant. Um, when I say, well, no, he, there are certain aspects he can change. I think it's strictly logically possible that he can change his moral nature. God can sin. There are strictly logically possible worlds where God lies or sins. There's no feasible world where God sins, given his morally perfect nature and that sort of thing. So that's what I had in mind when I said, when I changed my mind and said, yes, God can change his nature. Um, but at the same time, there are certain aspects that God can't change. He has essential properties, like he's an, in, a person. He is intelligence. He is rational. These are essential attributes of God that he is determined to have. He can't change, given the divine nature, the essential set of properties that a divine kind of being must have necessarily so just because certain things are determined or necessary about his nature doesn't mean that everything about god's nature is necessary and just because certain aspects are determined in order for god to be a libertarian free will agent that doesn't mean that those things determine the choice itself that the libertarian free will agent makes no uh that's a mistake that that tom jump was misunderstanding here and i just wanted to clarify that but yeah before let's get into the rest of the argument because that's not his main argument here against my my argument about necessary and sufficient conditions um so let's get into his main objections that. no so so there you have a nature like as i said randomness or whatever like it can create things at different points like a, like a quantum particle can decay at random times just fine even though there's infinitely many possible places it can decay it decays at this point in time that's just fine so quantum randomness can solve that easily or any of the other properties can solve that easily you could say it's determined to create the universe at time x and not time y that would be perfectly fine too so you don't need a choice here at all you can just say it's determined to create the universe at time x and not time y or it's random and it randomly created it at time x and not time y Either of those can explain that just fine. Either of those can answer the question, 
Why is it not eternal? Because it was determined to create it at time X. Okay, so so that just doesn't make sense then. If if the necessary and sufficient conditions are present in the antecedent, the consequent must come about. It's impossible for it not to come about. So to kind of use an analogy, it's like saying, well, we have water and we have so, to... so so it's determined to come about at time x and not before time x that could be a determined thing so it, it so the necessary and necessary conditions are there and they're going to make it happen at time x and not before time x but the, there's nothing in that that says that it would only there's nothing what what is it about a quantum field there's nothing that we know from modern science about a quantum field that says well, that's just, the, quantum fields are an example here. It doesn't matter. I can just say anything could exist in the nature of the necessary thing that could make it determined to do whatever action at time X and not before time X. That would be perfectly fine. There's no logical contradiction there. There's other ways to do it. Like it could be random. Randomness. If randomness is an inherent thing in the property of the necessary thing, then it could just do it randomly at time X instead of time Y. And that would also be logically coherent. So either of those things, either determined or randomness can both account for why the universe isn't past eternal. Yeah. So, so basically what you would be having to get the necessary and sufficient conditions are not present for all eternity. No, but the necessary it, and sufficient conditions are present for all eternity. And in those conditions, entails a time frame it says i'm going to do this at time x either randomly or determined and so it is fixed within those necessary and sufficient conditions that the universe will only occur at this time yeah that, that's not that's not the way it works i, I get what you where is the problem here so this is perfectly logically coherent there's no logical contradiction here so the fact all, all i can see is that you think you have your own preferred definition of what this means which just isn't required by reality. Reality does not accept your definition. So where is the contradiction here? Well, well, actually, all the experts, every scientist in the world accepts my definition on this that I'm aware of. So what? it's, it's wait, wait, wait. So, so again, all of the experts are going to be on my side of this. Everybody in physics rejects all of the theistic garbage. Like sure? they all think yes. Like they all think past eternal past eternal universes are the oh. consensus. So yes. no one agrees yes. with the theistic definitions here. But so so what what is it that you think? is impossible for either a determined necessary thing or a random necessary thing that makes it impossible for it to create something at time X and not time Y. Okay, so so with the determined for time X, it, that is saying that perhaps there's necessary but insufficient conditions that are present. Otherwise, the effect would necessarily come about. This is why logic works the way, this is why we have modus tollens reasoning or modus ponens, right, where we have and if then syllogism, if this antecedent is the case, then necessarily the consequence oh, okay. will come about. Oh, sure, sure. If you want to define sufficient that way, that's fine. I, I don't care. That's fine. I'm, I'm fine with that. So there's a necessary thing that says it's going to create it once the sufficient condition of time X has achieved. That's fine. There's no logical contradiction there. That's 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 totally okay. Okay, so let me give some commentary on, on these objections. So for, for, it's so misguided uh, on Tom's part. He, he's wrong about this, quite frankly. He doesn't know how it works. When we have a necessary sufficient conditions, um, it automatically brings about the effect. It's impossible for the effect or the consequent not to exist if the necessary and sufficient antecedent is present, unless someone has libertarian free will, the dual ability to refrain from bringing about the effect which naturalism or physical things do not have that. They're non-personal, non-free will agents. So they, they have no choice. They just cause 
think, given their causal dispositions, if the necessary and sufficient conditions are present, it will automatically cause the effect. The, the, it cannot wait for a certain time. So here's the here's an example. If Dale pours a bucket of water over John, over Tom Jump's head, then necessarily and immediately he will be wet. It's impossible for the necessary and sufficient conditions of the laws of nature and how water, the properties of water and Dale pouring a bucket of water over his head is a fact. All those conditions are present necessarily and immediately Tom will be wet. There is no, well, maybe there's a condition he can pour the water on and five minutes later at time X, then he'll be wet. It doesn't work that way. That what you're, if you say that, then you're saying that, well, no, there's necessary but insufficient conditions present because maybe we have the laws of nature. I have my bucket of water, but I haven't poured it over his head and I'll pour it over him five minutes from now and then he'll be wet. Nothing in the quantum, in quantum physics or the field or the physical particles, nothing physical can withhold that and refrain from bringing about its effect. It, they have causal dispositions. If the conditions are present, they're going to act and actualize those causal dispositions to bring about an effect immediately. They can't wait for time X. There is no such thing as, well, there's necessary and sufficient conditions that include at time X, we will do that. We will do this, right? Um, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, it, it, that's not the way necessary and sufficient conditions work. If, if the necessary and sufficient conditions are present, then the effect necessarily happens. Maybe Tom Jump will give an example like, well, what about freezing water? Let's say it's in, there's necessary conditions, zero degrees Celsius, and it's put in a water, it freezes at zero degrees Celsius, um, and you put it, the water of tray of ice cubes in the fridge, and you close the door, and then you go, well, there's necessary sufficient conditions here, right? Because there's the exact amount of coldness. I've put water. It has its causal disposition properties. Uh, it's causally disposed to freeze at below zero temperature, sub-zero temperatures. I open up the thing, and it's not frozen. It's taking time to freeze. Well, there, it's because the time is a necessary factor, right? It's a necessary... It's, nece it's insufficient, to have water in just sub-zero temperatures, given the causal dispositions of those objects, it, take, it takes time to, for it to freeze. So the conditions would be water properties in sub-zero temperatures and enough time for the necessi necessary and sufficient conditions uh, to, to make the effect. But if you wait five minutes, five minutes is part of the conditions is part of the sufficient and necessary and sufficient conditions for water to freeze. There's nothing comparable to that with the quantum realm. There's nothing that says, oh, well, I can't bring this about, especially if you're going quantum randomness. Are you kidding me? No, the, the randomness, the necessary and sufficient conditions are said to be present eternally, forever, over a past infinity of temporal moments. We've had enough time already. There, there is no waiting. This isn't comparable to the water needing time to freeze example. And that's why Tom Jump's argue, trying to argue based on quantum randomness. Quantum randomness, number one, is a sufficient explanation. There are necessary and sufficient conditions that cause a quantum effect to come about at a certain time versus another, where it doesn't, the virtual particles don't come about because there's ne necessary and insufficient conditions for that particle to come about. So there's always a sufficient explanation. Randomness doesn't avoid this. 
and his notion about being determined at time x doesn't work. For example, because of the, the example with the water taking time to freeze, like I said, the taking time is a necessary and sufficient condition for water freezing. It takes 10 minutes or something in sub-zero temperatures for the water to change and take the time process, a time interval for it to change and that sort of thing. But over the course of past actual infinite eternity, there is no time variables like that for something to take the process of changing. It's the necessary and sufficient conditions are already present. And if you want to say, well, Tom Jump believes in hypertime, so maybe it is like the ice cubes. Maybe uh, the, there were necessary but insufficient conditions to cause our universe in our space-time to exist. That's fine. But then there were necessary and sufficient conditions at some point in hypertime, uh, and that caused the universe, right? They'll say yes. Okay, great. Well, what about before that? Wasn't there a necessary and sufficient set of conditions to cause that set of the universe causing necessary and sufficient conditions? Yes, there would, it would have been. And you can go in, you either have to go into an infinite regress of net prior necessary and sufficient causing conditions, or you just have to admit because of all eternity, those necessary sufficient conditions would have already caused uh, the other set of universe creating necessary and sufficient conditions coming into existence from all eternity. Therefore, the universe would have been caused to exist from all of eternity. Um, it, it's impossible. If Tom Jump's naturalism or naturalistic pantheism physical state um, notion was true and the necessary and sufficient conditions did in fact exist for all of eternity, either directly or indirectly through causing, you know, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that caused a chain, a causal chain leading up to the necessary and sufficient conditions that caused our universe as we see it today, uh, space, our space time, all of that to exist. It nonetheless should have come into existence an eternity ago and not just 13.2 billion years ago. Uh, so this is basic logic. Um, you know, it, it's kind of a, an axiomatic, I think it's called the Brouwer Principle, if you have the power to create, uh, the causal power to create the universe, uh, either directly or if you have it indirectly, then it will come about. So, um, yeah, that's my response to this objection. It just doesn't work when you actually think about it and understand the nature of causation and what it means to have necessary and sufficient conditions. There is no such thing as having a, a time a time variable. It's like what Tom Jump is saying is saying, well, you can have you can pour a bucket of water over your head, but it's part of the conditions that you won't get wet until 20 minutes later. No, no, there is no avoiding it. You'll be wet immediately. As soon as the water is poured on your head in the conditions of planet Earth and our laws of nature, you'll be wet every single time. You can't delay that um, or delay that effect from coming into being given the necessary and sufficient conditions are present. Uh, so that was my point there. So, so yeah, Tom Jump's argument, counter-argument just fails. And I've established the agency and personhood on this argument alone. The fact that the universe is 13.82 billion years, but yet both Tom Jump and I say there was the necessary and sufficient conditions were present, either directly or indirectly for all of eternity, uh, then that proves the universe must be eternal. And since it's not, that proves that the only way to explain it is through libertarian free will of God, of some kind of necessary person let's say, uh, just to keep it minimally, uh, and some 
non-personal necessary physical or pantheism or something like that could not have refrained from creating for all of eternity and only created 13.82 billion years ago it necessarily would have created given the necessary and sufficient conditions present within it would have created an eternity ago and our universe would be eternal so that objection fails so all right uh so let's get into the next i think this is the final objection this is where i kind of ask him about actual infinities and he's kind of confused he conflates potential infinities the lemniscate these sideways eight with an aleph null with an actual infinite and what george cantor in modern transfinite math or infinite set theory says about infinites being an actual number but let's not get into it let's hear what he actually says in his own words so i don't take him out of context here Oh, and one last thing, just before we get into the the next uh, objection for the cosmological argument here. Uh, so, uh, related to these objections about, oh, you can be determined to come about at a later time and or through randomness, we got into quantum mechanics. And I, I brought up that actually the majority of the world's experts, all scientists agree with me and against Tom Jump, that um, whenever you posit some kind of unstable or metastable, metastable just means it's slightly unstable, in quantum mechanics, given the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it will necessarily uh, lead to the universe not being eternal. It will explode out into our expansion phase or something like that. There are dozens of scientific papers written by actual world's experts about this. And this is a constant theme. Everyone says, oh, it's a problem for everybody else, but it's not a problem for their favorite models. So scientists are just being hypocritical there when they say, well, my model can survive it. They usually come up with some kind of excuse, well, ours is a total net zero energy, very ad hoc. We have a special vac quant special quantum vacuum state where everything is precisely balanced. It's very fine-tuned in order to avoid instability or metastability problems and randomness, chance fluctuations and that sort of thing that can lead to the collapse of the eternality of the model. So this is very common in the scientific literature. I've linked to it in my own cosmological argument solo shows. So. Uh, I know what I'm talking about. Tom Jump doesn't, because I've actually read the peer-reviewed literature by scientists. Um, but I will say that he, yes, the majority of scientists do think that some kind of quantum notion is is uh, at play, and, and some kind of randomness is at play in terms of what sparked the Big Bang or what sparked the expansion of our universe, the phase of the universe that we're in. Of course, uh, undoubtedly, that's that's the case. But they all recognize the metastability or instability problem uh, in various forms. I mentioned BKL chaos problem, or there's other forms of turbulence or, or issues, and they have to come up with ad hoc, improbable explanations to overcome this uh, in order to make the universe eternal and that sort of thing. So, yeah, look, look at my cosmological argument, parts 3A and parts 3B. I explain in exquisite detail, along with citing scientific peer-reviewed sources, about these things so you can check it out for yourself and confirm i'm right and t jumps wrong about this he's got a general conception of what of, that's is true on his front front that yeah obviously the majority of atheistic scientists and physicists who don't want to believe the universe began to exist come up with excuses to try and say well randomness can be coherent with or mathematically plausible with postulating a eternal universe and, and quantum fluctuations and randomness uh, and that sort of thing but they still recognize the pro metastability or instability problems and these make models very improbable uh, unless they have some kind of ad hoc solution 
uh, and usually those solutions come with their own problems and they're refuted. So for example, one thing, there's a Rindler quantum vacuum state and it's perfectly, it's at a perfect zero state or something like that. So totally ad hoc and we can prove that that's impossible to come about or something like that. So I just wanted to clarify that. But yeah, let's get into the next objection because this is taking way too long just on the cosmological argument. Um, so we'll get into the last objection. Uh, and then I think we'll finish off part one of my review of Tom Jump. Okay, so you, you've been saying all this stuff uh, about entailing eternality means there's an actual infinite, and according to you, it's amount of time within hypertime uh, for the past of the universe and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with arguments against, for the impossibility of uh, actual infinites. Yeah, the Reaper's paradox, all the... Uh, yeah. sharpshooter paradoxes yeah um for you that i'm guessing there's no problem with that or anything like that or no okay so let me you do admit that when certain if we don't follow certain axioms that logical contradictions result um from that right it's it's illustrated by by those paradoxes that you mentioned or hilbert's hotel and that sort of thing. So basically, there are two self-evident principles that, that all mathematics professors accept in ordinary math. So there's, you know, if you have one set, one, two, three, four, uh, and that corresponds exactly to another set in a one-to-one -one correspondence, those those two sets are the same. They're, they're equal. That's pretty good. Take, sure. Okay, good. Okay, a uh, second self-evident principle that every mathematician on the planet admits is that if you have one set, one, two, three, four, and then you have another set uh, that contains some of the same elements, one, two, three, uh, that second set is a subset of the original set. They're not the same numbers. Sure. Okay, great. So when we posit an actual infinite taking place, we end up with contradictions, things that contradict one or both of those principles. And that's the basis, the fundamental basis that we say it's logically contradictory, right? So if you, for example, the actual infinite, the number is a left null um, kind of thing. That's what it, that's what it's called for the actual infinite. So if you have an, an infinite number of guests in, in your hotel, um, let's say you take out, you, you subtract, which is not allowed in transfinite math, but in the actual world, there's nothing preventing that. So you take away those, all of the odd numbered guests. So you're taking a left null minus a left null, and that still equals a left null. You still have an actual, is this confusing or try I'm judging? Uh, it was just, it's just irrelevant. So you can't take out time. Well, sure you can. You can, you can, oh, well, it gets into modal logic, uh, which you're going to deny, but, um, we let me just ask you and see if it works can would you say at least you can imagine or conceive um of worlds where certain events are taken out and didn't happen or something sure. like that okay so that would be the same as subtracting from a temporal nope. natural infinite temporal no nope. the fact that you can imagine it isn't the same as actually doing it so i can imagine uh, uh a world where i didn't exist but i can't actually do that so it's there's a difference between the fact that you can imagine it and the way it actually is so again our conceptions of math are languages so Gödel's incompleteness theorem all math all models of math cannot be shown to be internally consistent can't can't be done so we don't really care that our models of math can't accurately represent 
infinite swell. Like, okay, doesn't make a difference. The fact that our language can't accurately represent it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, it does actually, because we we actually know quite a bit about the actual about transfinite math. We're not suffering from ignorance on this front. We we know this field extremely well since Cantor came. David well, David um, Hilbert knew what he was doing when he came up with the Hilbert Hotel. This this is a relevant thought experiment to the notion of an actual infinite in our world. So don't we're not suffering from ignorance, and that's why we can't imagine these contradictions arise on the basis of what we actually know about the actual infinite itself uh no so that doesn't that's incorrect math is a representation of how we imagine things how it corresponds to reality is a completely separate topic so no well like i said it, it leads to actual contradictions when you subtract or if you uh don't actually subtract moments but you just say what's the number of we can we can definitely infinity enable. isn't a number infinity is a set Infinity is a number. It's a left null. Nope. And if, it's not what it means to have a past infinite. Okay, wait, sorry. Say that again. Null. So infinity isn't a number. It is a class. It is a set of things that continue on indefinitely. So so you see, math, if you just Google, is infinity a number? The answer is no. Infinity is not a number. Well, well that's so that's wrong. But it seems like to... to Literally every single one of the videos of the mathematicians explaining this say, no, infinity is not a number. In every single model of set theory, like, infinity is not a number. No. They literally all say this. Is infinity a number? Is infinity a number? You'll look up no. a left null. I know what aleph null is. The small, smallest countable infinite. It's still not a number. Infinity is not a number. It is a kind of number. Okay, so in terms of commentary, so this is the last objection on the cosmological argument where I was giving the proof, absolute proof, that an actual infinite is absurd to believe. Therefore, the universe cannot be past eternal. That entails an actual infinite within hypertime, uh, impossible to exist. And T-Jump had a couple of objections. So the first place, he has this side issue that's totally not important at all, but he's saying, denying that Aleph null, an actual infinite is not a number. And it, that's just complete rubbish. He has no clue what he's talking about. He basically just did a little Google search. I did the same Google search and found what he's talking about. He just, is infinity a number, right? That's what he said. And infinity is not a number. Instead, it's a kind of a number, blah, blah, blah. He just read out what he found on a Google search. I believe the actual world's experts, the people who invented infinite set theory, not a Google search. So uh, I'll, I'll post up on my sources uh, George Cantor's 1915 book, page 108, where he actually uh, provably says, quote-unquote, that after we have introduced the least transfinite cardinal number, Aleph Null, oh, whoops, the world's expert, George Cantor, who invented transfinite math and the actual infinite, says it's a cardinal number. Aleph Null is a cardinal number. This is on page right at the end of page 108 and at the top of page 109 in his book. Again, I'll include that entire book. Uh, I'm right, T-Jump's wrong. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, now, secondly, uh, and sorry, I don't mean to, again, that my, uh, to sound annoyed isn't against T-Jump or, or uh, his skeptical audience at all. This is, there's this kind of annoyance towards SNS skeptics because there's a mathemat actual mathematician, and he was supporting T-Jump, and he should know better. He should be siding with me on this if he's an actual PhD mathematician. So that, 
yeah, it's this is uh, just ignore the annoyance on this. But getting to the substance, so so T jump is wrong when he says that it's not a number. It is an actual number. It's alephanol. Yes, there's it's a set of numbers as well. I mean, it's it's all the real numbers or whatever it is. Um, but even uh, the Zermelo-Frankel axiomatic set theory, this is the infinite set theory that we use today. And even the world's experts, uh, Abraham Frankel, who invented, helped to co-invent the uh, Zermelo-Frankel infinite set theory, or it's called axiomatic set theory. He himself refers to it here in his 1961 book, as a number, a left null is a number, just like a left one, a left two, a left three, a left four. The bigger infinites are also numbers. Um, so, so I just wanted to correct that. But it doesn't matter. Even pretend T jump is right that it's not a number. Who cares? It's the set of all numbers. Whatever. It's still an actual quantity. That's all that matters. It's an actual quantitative set of all the numbers in that set, infinite set. Um, so, so yeah, this is, so yeah, this subjection just doesn't work. Um, and my argument still applies even if T-jump is still right. It doesn't matter whether it's a number or not. Um, the fact is there's still an actual infinite number of things entailed in, in the left null set. And you still mathematically, you can take away certain elements or you can do certain calculations and get differing results and that's mathematically impossible it contradicts the two self-evident principles that t-jump himself agreed to in the beginning when we started it uh, and this is why transfinite math or axiomatic set theory has certain axioms like you can't subtract because it knows it leads to contradictory results entailed in some of these thought experiments that philosophers conducted like the tristam shandy experiment or uh, thought experiment or the uh, Grim Reaper paradox, or the uh, you know the Hilbert's Hotel that Dr. William Lane Craig likes to use, and that sort of thing. Um, so so yeah, and one thing that I I'm not sure. I don't want to say that T Jump is confused necessarily about this. I thought he was. He might not be, but there's a difference between a potential infinite, which is just the Lemniscate, gate, the sideways eight. Uh, definitely, some people skeptics in his audience were confused when I was reading the comments. That's a potential infinite. That's great, grand, and groovy. That's what William Lane Craig says. That's what Christian theists say. That's what I say. There's only a potential infinite. There's no such thing as an actual infinite. Those are impossible to exist, but there are potential infinites. We approach infinity all the time. Absolutely. But if, you, if you're going to take that route, if that's what T-jump means, or if that's what you mean as a skeptic, then that proves I'm right. There is no actual infinite. The universe is not past eternal it's only potentially eternal in the past and therefore potentially eternal or potential infinites are not actual infinites they're only they're finite potential infinite is just another word for finite uh, but it increasingly growing um, but it's always finite at any given point therefore the universe began to exist in the finite past it's not past eternal because there's no actual infinite and bada boom bada bing the theist wins I've won the argument so it sounded, at times it sounded like T-Jump was confused between a potential infinite and an actual infinite, uh, but it's because he doesn't follow the proper definitions of things or, or the proper way of saying things. He just does it like a quick Google search um, and reads off that. So like, I, I don't want to as falsely ascribe to him that he 
thinks that an actual infinite is the same as a potential infinite. That might just be I'm mishearing him. Uh, but in case, if he was saying that, if I did get him right, um, then my objection stands. Great, I'll accept the potential infinite. Thank you very much. That's what me and Dr. William Lane Craig and the uh, paradoxes are infinite, actual infinite paradoxes are all about. Um, bada boom, bada bing. Thank you. The universe began to exist in the finite past. You're done. It's not past eternal. Your naturalistic state is not necessary because it's not past eternal, according to you. It's only potentially infinite, not actually infinite. Uh, if it was an actual infinite, then, like I said, it is a number. The world's experts, the people who invented infinite set theory, agree with me and not T-Jump. And whether, regardless of whether it's a number or not, uh, it still has an actual number. It's an infinite, actually infinite quantity that is being uh, involved here of, of numbers, and you can perform certain functions that result in contradictory answers, violating those two self-evident mathematical principles. So either way, the argument succeeds. Even if you grant T-Jump's notion that it's, the actual infinite isn't a number, uh, and if you grant, uh, if he was saying that, well, actual infinites are potential infinites, thank you. That's what I'm saying. That's what we're trying to prove here. Um, and if he doesn't do that, then, again, doesn't matter whether it's a number or not, they entail contradictions. And that's why under current axiomatic set theory, there are certain operations that you're not allowed as an axiom, unproven, unwarranted assumption, to do. Um, and those have no basis in reality, as, as T-Jump was saying. One last thing just to point out on this act, on the infinite, though, it, it's not the case that the infinites in math have no bearing on reality. That's ridiculous. We use actual infinites in transfinite math all the time to calculate the circumferences or for satellite orbits. Uh, it helps us predict stock market things. So it has real-world implications and effects in the real world. Um, and this is usually an argument cited against that says, well, the actual, most mathematicians go, well, see, that proves the actual infinite does exist. We just don't under understand it, but obviously it has real world applications. Now, I disagree with that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Um, so I, I kind of like what T-Jump's saying here, um, but it, it's just not the case that, um, it, it, it's opposite to what he wants to argue as an atheist, or at least what most atheists would want to say, right? Because that's that's my supposed to be my line, is that, yeah, it works in the abstract realm of math, transfinite numbers, but they have no bearing in the actual world. They can't be instantiated in the actual world. So if T-Jump's saying, well, there's no connection between the world of mathematics and the real world, that's scientifically proven false. Um, but if it was true, that would support me then, um, rather than him. Um, he would have just nothing to prove that there are actual infinites or even possible or plausible in any way. Okay, so, so that's my take on that. Um, next up is his take on the ontological, modal ontological argument. And T-Jump really only had one objection to this. And this was his objection that, oh, you can't prove there are objective quote-unquote, great-making properties. He didn't object to any of the premises or anything else. That may just be a fluke of the conversation. Maybe he did have other objections, but we kind of got sidetracked because my way of knowing that there are objective great-making properties or greatness evaluations grounded in God as the objective standard 
we got sidetracked on that. Well, how do you know that? It's a PBB. It's a properly basic belief. And we spent a lot of time on that, um, which wasn't my plan. I, I didn't want to spend all the time talking about that, but uh, it was cool. Okay, that, that was my way for this for this objection. And yeah, me and T-Jump kind of went back and forth. I'll, lis I'll, I'll listen to it and see if there's something I want to add, but I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that we covered it pretty thoroughly on the show. Uh, but just in case, um, but yeah, I, I wanted to say something. Tom Jump's main objection is to the objectiveness of great making property. So, so let's hear his objection in his own words. Not so I don't take him out of context here first. Okay, so so actually I've changed my so actually I've changed my mind here. Um, instead of going into the ontological argument now, just because this is over two hours already, and this is just a review show for crying out loud, all covering the cosmological argument thus far, so this is way too long. So I'm going to break this up into parts. I'll do part two. That'll pick up with the ontological argument and uh, the argument from beauty, um, and then maybe do a part three review of T-Jump's show on how he addressed identifying miracles and the Shroud of Turin to finish off the show. Uh, but for right now, this is way too long. Um, I'll just leave you with this about the ontological argument. T-Jump's whole spiel about, well, you can't prove that this is, uh, these properties are objectively great. Uh, in the first place, you can just say, who cares? Totally beside the point, totally irrelevant. Um, because nonetheless, we're proving that there is a being that I, we as human beings give the label of maximally great being. It's just a label, just a title. Treat it that way if you don't think there's anything great about these properties. Nonetheless, it has all power. It's omnipotent. It's omniscient. And uh, what it, it's morally perfect. And we can prove through the modal ontological argument, those six, those six premises I give in that, that you'll find out uh, what those premises are in part two. It still proves there is a being that has these properties, these certain properties, as opposed to another being that has different properties or something. And it proves that there is a being that has omnipotence, om omniscience, moral perfection, and whatever else you want to ascribe to God through this argument. Um, and it just so happens that human beings label these properties great or great making, whether that's on a subjective basis or not, a subjective, purely subjective label. For the sake of argument, um, who cares? Uh, totally irrelevant. So, so yeah, I think Tom Jump's argument just totally falls apart. Either way, the argument, the ontological argument proves there's a, a being that ha that's omnipotent, that that's omniscient, that is morally perfect, that is omni-whatever, um, that sort of thing. And that's all the argument needs to prove, whether you call that, label that maximally great or not, whether you label the properties of omnipotence uh, great-making properties or not, totally besides the point. They're just helpful heuristical labels for us. So, yeah, I just wanted to give that quick objection to T-Jump's main and only objection to the ontological argument proper. He literally had nothing else. And we spent the rest of the time saying, okay, well, if you do label them as great-making properties, and this is an objective uh, qualifier of the, of the property of omnipotence or something like that, on what basis do you say it's an objective, objectively a great-making property? And that's where we got into properly basic beliefs and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll go through that and when I get time, I'll post up part two of my review to this. But for now, um, I think I've fulfilled my promise to Marvin and uh, this will be part one, mostly on my review of his 
retorts to the cosmological argument that I presented on the show. Okay, thank you very much, and have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.